Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. She played for Notre Dame in the NCAA before joining us on the beach, where she's played in over 127 AVP events with 19 medals. She's represented the USA on the FIB Tour over 52 times, 25 of those with a top 10 finish and four medals. And she began coaching with the Netherlands, USA, and is now with LMU. Please welcome to the show, Angie Akers. Angie, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Josh. I'm excited to be here. So much to cover, and I, I hope I don't skip over stuff for our listeners, but selfishly, I want to get to your coaching stuff, but man, what a playing career we got to get to first. So uh, with you being a post-secondary athlete and then a professional athlete on the beach, what else were you doing as a kid before you thought, man, volleyball is the sport for me, and I'm going to do this for the rest of my life? <laughs> well, I grew up in Indiana where basketball was uh, the sport to play, and I was a dual-sport athlete. Um, for quite a while. And I think it was after a few black eyes and uh, twisted ankles that I finally decided that I wanted to play a sport where nobody touched me. And I gravitated more towards uh, volleyball at that point. And with you growing up in that area, was Notre Dame like the school, like you were a little girl thinking, I want to go to this school? Or when did it become time to commit and think that you were going to be a fighting Irish? Oh, I mean, if you look at childhood photos uh, from when I was three and four years old, I'm covered in Notre Dame gear head to toe. So I think there was no doubt that um, looking back at, at those photos, that's where, where I was going to end up. Now, I think on the men's side, it's finally shifted where I don't think you need to be a West Coast athlete to do like compete for a national championship and do that. So uh, on the women's side in your era, was it already competitive East to West or is it fair to say that the West coast athletes were probably more favored or higher ranked to win national championships at that time? Yeah, I think, um, at the time, uh, long beach state, USC, UCLA, Stanford, they were dominating. Penn state was on the scene as well in Florida, um, Nebraska. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, there was quite a bit of a, the West coast domination. And then how did you feel like your career progressed? Like for you to turn pro indoor is obviously a pretty daunting task. So did you just have a really good junior and senior season or when did you figure out that you, this could be like your first occupation out of school? Well, it, it kind of fell into my lap a little bit. So right after I graduated, I got married and my husband was pursuing a professional football career. So I thought I was finished with playing volleyball and I, you know, we were married and I was following him around while he was pursuing that dream. And um, I got a call from my college teammate who was playing in Switzerland at the time and they needed another outside hitter. So she called me up and said, would you have any interest in coming over here? It would happen really quick. Like you'd have to decide and pretty much be on a plane and, you know, like a week or two's time. And it sounded like a really intriguing and interesting adventure. So, uh, and I'm always up for an adventure. Um, so thought about it for a hot second said yes. And went over and played Switzerland, um, on a team over there, but it was, it, it was the second half of a season. So it was like four months long. And when that was over, it was, it was d- definitely an interesting experience, but I don't need to play anymore. It's time for the next, next thing in life. And, um, I actually took a four-year hiatus away from um, volleyball, indoor, beach, whatever, uh, before I actually found my way into the sand. Awesome. Yeah. And before we jump ahead to the beach thing, I have to know, you go to a prestigious school like Notre Dame and a heck of an athletic department. Did pro compare to that? Or was it almost safe to say that because of the team room and the access to facilities, like is Notre Dame almost as good as a professional team or maybe better in some categories? Well, unfortunately not for volleyball. Um, I would say for the other sports for sure. Um, but volleyball is pretty behind, um, and was at the time as well. But you know, the, the team that I played for in Switzerland was, it was in a tiny, tiny little town, I think less than 2000 people in the, in the village, not even a town. And, you know, we played in one of the local gyms and I remember the, I mean, a fantastic crowd coming with pots and pans and, you know, like the utensils to beat on the, uh, on a pan as the drum or whatever. But I mean, it was such a lively, fun environment. And I, I still remember like, you know, the, the coach is on the sidelines smoking a cigarette. It was just such a different time <laughs> and just so incredibly interesting, but it was my first experience too. Like, Wednesdays we had mandatory team uh, a sauna and recovery days and you know you had to get a massage and I was like whoa okay this is this is new 
Um, so I, I would say they're just drastically different experiences. It wasn't professional in the sense of um, like what, maybe what we think of uh, professional football or basketball or opportunities that they they present. It was much more like grassroots. Nice, nice. Good to hear. And so jumping ahead to the beach, when did you want to jump into the AVP and start like grinding? Because indoor and beach are quite different. And, and the one thing that stands out in my mind is having to go through a qualifier. Like what was your first impression when you're going to sign up for a professional tournament? It's like, what do you mean we have to play this tournament before we're in the actual tournament? Like, was there anything that transferred into the beach that kind of caught you off guard? Well, to be perfectly honest, I never, growing up, I never had the dream of playing beach volleyball. I, it wasn't, growing up in Indiana, there wasn't a sand court anywhere around. I'd never tried it. It wasn't on my radar at all. But after, um, during those four years when I wasn't playing volleyball or sport in general, I was, I was working. I, at the time I was living in San Francisco and I worked for Lehman Brothers in finance and sitting at a desk all day and that just, it, it was kind of crushing me to be honest. Like I'm just not meant to sit still. And my, that same, uh, college teammate who called me with the opportunity in Switzerland called me up and said, Hey, what do you think about moving to Southern California and try playing beach volleyball? And again, I thought about it and was like, yes, this sounds like a great idea. <laughs> so my husband and I picked up, he, he was actually injured at the time and just going through, um, going through recovery for an injury. So we picked up and we moved to Long Beach and I didn't give myself an option to fail. I was like, we moved for this and this is what's happening and this is what I'm going to do. And it was a major struggle um, just moving there, not knowing anyone. Um, and it's kind of a crazy story how it all worked out too. So my college roommate, Jamie Lee, she, um, she called randomly called the UCLA men's volleyball office and just asked if um, if any of the, the players would want to come to the beach and help her partner and her try and, you know, practice or, or just play. And John Sparrow was the coach who answered the phone and he was the assistant coach at UCLA at the time. And he said, well, I'll come and I'll bring my roommate. And his roommate at the time was Jeff Nygaard, who that year before happened to be the AVP rookie of the year. So my first day in the sand was with John Sparrow and Jeff Nygaard. And I had been running marathons and road races and all sorts of, you know, running was my new athletic endeavor. So um, after four years of not jumping, getting into the sand and trying to move was beyond tragic. So we have a fun first day in the sand, but they're thinking like, okay, this will never happen with this girl. Like she, she can't even move. Um, but then you know, we were talking afterwards and, and Jeff asked like, what, you know, what are you trying to achieve? And I said, well, I just moved down here with my husband. I want to play beach volleyball. I want to make this work. And, um, but I don't know anybody. And he said, well, you're, I'll train you if you want to come up here. It was Santa Monica beach. And, and um, he's like, you drive up here, then I'll help you out. So for the next six months, three times a week, Jeff Nygaard was basically my coach. And after a few months, um, John Hyden had stopped playing on the indoor national team and wanted to play beach as well. So he joined us. So the three of us would train, they would help me out. They would make me walk over to a court where there were other girls playing and make me introduce myself. I was so shy um, <laughs> and get phone numbers and call people. I didn't have a cell phone at the time. So I would, but I would call these people and they wouldn't call me back. So it was really disheartening. And it wasn't until Polly McPeak randomly called the house I was living in looking for Jamie and inviting her to a rookies camp that she was going to hold that year. And I called her back right away and said, you know, Jamie doesn't live here, but I do. And I really want to come to your camp. Can I come? And she was like, yeah, great. So I show up at her camp and went through a week of training with her. And then she basically took me under her wing and um, became my mentor, um, invited me to her, some of her practices. I became a training partner for her. And then she helped me find partners and just provided guidance all along the way until, you know, eventually, I think it was nine years later, um, I actually partnered with her for a season. 
Um, so that was a dream come true for me. Yeah, what a great story just about our community and how it just kept coming together. Though The names you're saying, even as a Canadian fan, I'm going, yeah, I, I recognize that name. I recognize that name. Like, it's it's just such a cool feeling that they were so inclusive, even though you were brand new. Yeah, and just wild because at the time, you know, John Sparrow was an assistant coach at UCLA. He's now the USA men's national team and head coach at UCLA. And Jeff Nygaard was just, you know, playing on the AVP as a rookie young himself and then you know, ended up becoming, you know, a three-time Olympian, two-time indoor, but once on the beach as well. And now he's the head coach at USC for the men's program. And it's just, it's fun to have almost grown up um, with these people and watch the successes that they've had and and share and, and some of that. With you being such a high performer and just like a focused athlete, did it reach a point where you felt like you belong? Because I'm looking at some of the results here on the AVP and you're playing against uh, like McPeaky you mentioned and Nicole Brand is out there and Carrie and Misty and Kessie and Dodd. Like that was a great era for women's volleyball in the AVP. So was there a certain point where you thought about like this isn't going to be for me or did you really enjoy the struggle and the grind of going through qualifiers and then, you know, maybe this tournament you take a 13th or something like that? Like uh, how did you kind of embrace what was a, such a strong tour at that time? Gosh, I, I loved the struggle and the grind of it. And I just admired these women so much that, you know, getting beat up by them, you know, time <laughs> and time again was just like a, I don't know, almost an honor. And I knew that it was like, gosh, I just want to be there so bad. So it was just, you know, just, just it felt like part of it. And I think I could just always maintain that perspective of, um, I want to get better and I have to play against, you know, and get beat up by these people if I want to reach that as well and, uh, and just keep going. And I, I just loved training and I loved competing. So, well, of course it's, you know, it's never fun getting absolutely smashed or your butt kicked, but I don't know. It was just all kind of part of that big picture. And I just loved that big picture. And at what point was the FIB going to be a serious thing for you? Because obviously you're entering this world of beach volleyball. A lot of the top AVP players do represent the USA internationally. So uh, you, you did join the FIB quickly, but it looks like it was kind of later, like 2009, when you started getting results and doing full season. So what made you want to try the FIB? And then what made you finally commit and say, you know what, I'm going to play like 10, 11, 12 events this year? Yeah, so I think I I don't quite remember the years exactly correctly, but I think 2006 might've been the first year that I went to a couple um, European events, played in some country quotas, lost terribly. Um, and yeah, just really kind of like gave it a go to see what it was all about. Ended up losing a ton of money and <laughs> then kind of figuring out, okay, there's gotta be a better strategy for this. Um, so it was always, I think in the back of my mind, but I, I had that little taste of like, okay, I need to be better prepared for this in a lot of ways. Like it can't just be something you go do for fun. Like it's gotta be like, if I'm going to do it, I gotta be successful doing it and make sure that it's worth the time. And, you know, I'm gonna, um, not, not lose my bank account over it, I guess. So, um, it really wasn't until 2009, um, I partnered with Tyra Turner and she had already played a few seasons on the FIVB tour. So she had that experience. And we, when we partnered up as a team, we thought we would be able to compete there. So that was kind of the first, um, yeah, that first chance, I guess, to really go prove myself out there. And once again, I'm just looking at the results. And again, that era of the FIV was just gnarly with like, uh, Julianne and Larissa and the Salgado sisters and even just getting through country quota in the qualifier like the other American teams that were going on there. So did it feel similar because the AVP was so competitive or was the FIV just different for you because it was international? It was teams you weren't as familiar with. You're spending more money to get to, I don't know, China or Switzerland or wherever the tournament was. Like, did it feel like something totally different or was the level of the AVP so close and competitive that volleyball was volleyball at that point? It did feel different, but only in the sense that I mean, back at that time too, there was the, um, the bonus pool. So you had to participate in a certain number of FIVB events in order to make, you know, your full prize money that you earned. Um, but the, the AVP was going really strong at the time too. So, um, the AVP felt 
you know, it was extremely competitive. But then there was also, you know, like if you had any dream of going to the Olympics, you had to go that FIBB route. Um, so it was slightly different in the sense that there were conflicting events and we could request permission to miss an AVP event to go to an FIVB event, which is what Tyra and I did for our first one. So we were actually the only American team at my first FIVB event in 2009, which was Osaka in Japan. And we, I just remember I was the new kid on the block there and all the cameras that would show up on your court for every match that you played. And it would, you know, the first match, there might be like three or four. And then as the tournament goes on, pretty soon you've got like 15 cameras on your court because, you know, everybody wants footage of the new teams who are out there. Um, but we ended up finishing fourth in that tournament, playing for a chance at a medal. And that set us in a really good position for being a main draw team going forward. So we didn't have to battle through, if I remember correctly, I don't think we had to battle through um, country quotas um, that year at all because we set ourselves up in that first event. And then, um, and then some results came along that way, but you had the, both tours were, were pretty different. It's just, slightly different style play um, on each, you know, the more relaxed atmosphere of the AVP, which is always, you know, so fun, so enjoyable. And then FIVP is a little bit more, um, you know, there, there's the, the brackets and timing and everything's just run a little bit more uh, precise, I guess you could say, just planned out and not the looseness and flexibility of kind of what the AVP schedule was. So that, that definitely gives it a different feel. Now, I am curious uh, as a Canadian interviewing an American, does the AVP just kind of help the idea of playing in front of family and friends? Because looking at some of the tournaments you did really well, like uh, I imagine your family isn't coming over to Klagenfurt to watch you play or uh, some of these other events, like you mentioned, you did well in Japan. So was that just a good way to stay connected to your support system? Because it feels like for North Americans, the world tour is like, uh, it's always an airplane trip away versus the AVP, man, you get to go around the country, but I'm sure at some point, either your husband or family and friends got to support you, right? Yeah, I think my husband came to almost every single tournament AVP that I played in. Um, and, but yeah, like my family's close to Chicago. So that was always a big one um, for my family. and. Yeah, I mean, they're just, that was, I mean, it was going so strong. It was kind of the American beach volleyball dream. And it was, it was fun. It was, uh, there's just a lot going on. And um, yeah, it's, it's hard to describe if, if you haven't seen it. It's, and at that time it was 32 team draws in two days. So it was a ton of volleyball. Like I remember days we'd play five matches in a day, then have to get up early the next morning and come back and play again, feeling like just dog meat. And, <laughs> you know, it was just, you just would grind it out. It was, it was, yeah, just great memories. And to, to jump ahead a little bit here, how did the opportunity come to get into coaching? Like, did you, just kind of say as a player, you know what, I've accomplished everything I want to do. And did you start off as either a personal coach or coaching AVP teams, or did you go right to the Federation gig with the Netherlands? Yeah. So I, I can't say that I was, I, I trained really, really hard. I can't always say that it was really smart because my body paid the price for it and had quite a few injuries. And ultimately it was a knee injury that took me out of the game, you know, as, as a player. Um, so my last knee injury, I had a long recovery after surgery and started working for the World Series of Beach Volleyball, which was an FIVB event hosted in Long Beach, California. So when working that event, um, you know, the FIVB teams coming over and playing in there, um, Morph Bowes, who when I was competing, he was coaching the British and we were friends. Um, and at the time then of that World Series event, he had switched federations and was coaching for the Dutch. And he was asking, like, what are you up to? What are you doing? Do you miss playing? What's happening? And I, I said, yeah, I miss playing a lot. Um, you know, and I miss being on tour and traveling and, and all that. And he's like, well, would you have any interest in coaching? And I said, yeah, I definitely would. And he said, well, let me see what I can do. He's like, I really need an assistant coach. So 
um, if you'd be interested, you know, I'll, I'll throw your name out there. And I was like, yeah, sounds great. Then five months later, he had the position approved and we started moving forward. And I, next thing I know, I picked up and moved to the Netherlands. And uh, initially, I think it was supposed to be like a nine month, um, not a trial, but I guess just a short contract to see, you know, if it was going to work or not for both for me and also for the Federation. And uh, at the end of that, they offered me another year. And by the end of it, I was there for six seasons and, you know, lived in the Netherlands for five and a half years and had an incredible experience, learned how to be a coach and um, all the different facets that go into it. And that really was kind of the launch pad of my coaching career. That's so cool to hear. So with USA, believe me, I don't know your system very well, but it feels like more often than not, teams kind of have an independent or a personal coach, uh, and they get supported by the federation. Here in Canada, we kind of have two tiers where if you get a certain level of results, uh, you're on your own and, and you're considered senior athletes, or we have a next-gen home base. Uh, with the Netherlands, what was kind of the basic setup? Like, were you coaching the teams who were on tour right away? Were you working with young teams? Like, what was your first introductory with them? I was brought in to be the assistant coach for the top teams. So I, at that time, I was only working with uh, the world tour, uh, the world tour teams. Um, but the way that their federation is set up is that there is the talent development coach um, who works with the youth, and then there are the top team coaches. And everybody at the end of the day works together, so it is a, a coach pool, and we are working with youth athletes. It's there, it's not like in the U.S. where there is an abundance of athletes, and if you want to practice against a different competitor every day, you you could. There's it's, you know, a limited pool of athletes there. So, um, of course we would bring some young players up and, and have them train with the top teams. Um, but it's yeah, structured in that way that there's a, a coach who's in charge of those talent, uh, development athletes, and then coaches who are in charge of the top teams. Now, you had a great career, and I'm wondering if that gave you a little bit of confidence or a little bit of equity with the athletes where you jump into the coaching pool, and there might be athletes who have as good of results or maybe as much experience on the beach as you do, right? So was there anything that kind of accelerated your learning or made it feel like you could contribute right away and they were going to listen to what you said versus being like, hey, like we've played each other and I won that match or whatever the situation was? <laughs> um, it was interesting with the Dutch. I, I was expecting a lot of resistance. And there really wasn't like they were so welcoming and they, I think they, they really appreciated that I was a woman who had done it myself. And so I could really connect with them on that and know what they were going through, even know some of the opponents who they were playing against. So there was, I, I, yeah, it was an, an unexpected welcomeness that I thought I was really going to have to earn, but was just right away. Like they, um, they were welcoming and, um, really were curious and wanted to know what I had to say. And, um, so yeah, the struggle that I anticipated wasn't really there. I think for me, the biggest, the biggest point that played into my insecurity was like after my experience with the Dutch moving to April and Alex, and I was very intimidated to coach April Ross, who had already won two medals in the Olympics. Like that was intimidating for me. Um, but she also was, you know, very open and, um, and, you know, was inviting of, I want to hear what you have to say. So, um, it was more just kind of getting over my own, uh, insecurity than anything really there. Interesting. Yeah. Just before we jump ahead to that, I am curious, um, obviously, uh, Mepperlink and Kaiser have been doing well in the Netherlands system, but now with, uh, Stoom and Sham there, and there's a bunch of young teams coming, what can you give credit to with the Netherlands system that a, a cold weather country is just developing young athletes? And uh, we made jokes earlier on the show earlier in the year. I think uh, Canada one lost to Netherlands five on the men's side, but then we look at Netherlands five and go, that's, that's a legit world tour team. There's just so many of them. Right. So what has uh, kind of credited the development for both the men's and women's program in the Netherlands? Well, they have such a great program. They really do. They, they support it very well. Um, they have great facilities and just the support structure that's in place. Um, they provide a lot of coaching. They provide a lot of support around the team. I mean, everything from, you know, the strength coaches and strength program and, 
um, doctors and, and therapy and everything, you know, surrounding the physical aspects of it. And then the mental support, there's a full program there that, that these athletes are, um, are welcomed into and, and supported as much as they want to, you know, participate in that. And, you know, the facilities, Zouder Park is the, uh, the training, the new training facility. It's I think now four or five years old, um, but it hosts some of the, the first indoor FIVB events in the Hague. Um, I think it was over like the Christmas time or new year holiday, um, a few years ago. Um, but it's, there's just beautiful facilities and they, they care about the programs and they put a lot of effort and money and funding into it. Um, they do a really good job of supporting it. Great, great to hear. Cause like I said, uh, it just seems like they have team after team coming. So, uh, to jump back to, you get the opportunity to work with Alex in April. Uh, at what point did that happen? Because I feel like we were already in the Olympic qualifying, right? Oh yeah, it was, um, it was in the midst of COVID. So, um, right after the Olympics were postponed, um, that's when, you know, I sat down with my husband and we were living in the Netherlands, but his work want, really wanted him back in the United States. And I just looked at him like, I, we're not going to live apart. We can't do this. So, and I know he had to, he had to move back for his work. So, you know, it was, it wasn't really, wasn't really a question. I knew I had to leave. So as hard as it was, I had to say goodbye to, you know, to my Dutch players and, you know, the coaching staff there and, and leave the program. Um, but I was going to finish out my, uh, my contract, which ended in August of 2020, it was supposed to be after the Olympics. So at the same time, Jen Kessie, who was coaching April and Alex was going through a similar situation with her husband. Um, they were, had plans to move across the country and live in Maine and, start a new life out there and her kids were enrolled in school. So it was again, a decision that she had to make and it just kind of, you know, led the, the COVID situation of the pandemic is kind of what steered, uh, steered the situation. And so April and Alex were looking for a full-time coach and I just happened to be available and moving back and it happened rather quickly. So we took some time to kind of get to know each other, um, to figure out if we'd be on the same page and whatnot. And it seemed like we would. So we moved forward with it. Yeah. And hopefully it's not too private. I was wondering if you could give an example, like, does that happen over dinner? Does that happen on a zoom call? Like at what point do you realize that you guys have the same goals or the same mentality. Like, do, do you run a practice and they go, okay, that went pretty well. Like how do you kind of warm up to each other in a situation like this? Well, I imagine under normal circumstances, something like that could take place, but I mean, it was the pandemic and I was in the Netherlands in a lockdown. I think the United States was in a lockdown. And so like there was no luxury of having the opportunity to do anything like that. So it was over zoom calls. Um, and just, you know, kind of laying out like, what are values? Like, what do you, what do you value? What are you looking for? What are your philosophies? And just kind of um, sharing back and forth some of those things and deciding if uh, there were, you know, common ground and, and shared beliefs and, and values. And, and that was, that was kind of how it went. Now, I use this term loosely because like, I the women's volleyball is super competitive. And I think everyone at the Olympics probably believes they had a chance to win, but uh, I'm curious what the talks were within your group about like Alex and April had a better than average shot of winning. I'm sure you guys were talking podium right off the bat. So do you, do you acknowledge that? Do you shy away from it and say like, we're going to be a process driven team or stick to our values? Like how do you address something where it's like, yeah, we're, we're a gold medal threat. Like, do you just say that in the open and that's our goal? Or do you try to steer the goal towards something else? That's a little bit more in your control. That's it's such a hard question to answer because I think it's so dependent on, on so many different, different things. But I think with them there, there was that expectation because they had already done so well and they were already, I think they were at the time, the second ranked team in the world. The, the expectation I think is there, but then it's like, it's unspoken, but then do you want to bring it to the surface or not? And, it's it's such a tricky thing, but I think 
at one point we kind of wanted to, and gosh, I don't remember exactly how this went, but um, I know one thing that really helped me navigate through all that was a blog post that April had written. And it was kind of around the subject of expectation and, um, and it kind of addressed all that, just that you can only do what's in your control. And as long as you have done it all to the best of your ability, you can rest easy at the end of the day, knowing that you've done your very best. So I, I don't think I really answered your question there, but um, <laughs> it was a, it, yeah, it was, it was spoken about, but also we went through an exercise called a pre-mortem and kind of laid out stuff like that. Like, what are the, what are the possible derailers that could go wrong that would set us off course? And what can we do about it to prepare for it if, if one of these things were to happen? And going through exercises like that are really important and helpful to me so that, you know, you can rest easy at the end of the day that you have done everything in your control. The result is going to be what the result is. Um, but there's no would have, should have, could have that you look back on. I understand with probably with the, you involved in April and Alex, it doesn't get too hokey, but for any of our coaches listening, is there any way you can guide that? Because I'm sure this could be never ending. It could be, well, what if the shuttle to the venue gets a flat tire and we're going to be late for our game? Like you could probably just keep dreaming down this web of things that could go wrong. So uh, how did you guys kind of keep it realistic, but also trying to be prepared for stuff that realistically could happen? And maybe you guys have been in a tournament and the shuttle was late or something like that happened. So how did you narrow this down without being like so almost pessimist that you're like, oh, these million things could happen to us, right? Sure. And that's that's one of the the risks that people see in it is that you you bring things into light that you know bad energy or whatnot but it's really it's not about that it's really about diverting things that can be in your control and you can you have a chance to do something about and i had learned about it from the high performance director from usa volleyball and he led us through the exercise and he has experience from you know working with uh, the SEAL team commanders and um, and different business leaders and, and whatnot. So it's not just something that you can do in sport, but you can really do it across the board with, with you know, preparation for, for anything. Um, but what it's, you know, I think sometimes it can start in that way that, yeah, the bus is late, what are we going to do? But a lot of it too is just, okay, if the bus is late, that will be anxiety anxiety inducing for a lot of people. How can you offset that anxiety if you know you're going to feel it? So it can be little things that have really big impact on people and 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 your your players. And if you can put processes in place that either address how how you can effectively deal with it, um, or you know give the tools. And part of this whole process too is what's the likelihood that something is going to happen? If the likelihood is is very, very minimal and it's out of your control, there's, okay, there's not much you can do about it. But if the likelihood is pretty high that something could happen and it's anxiety inducing, then why not put a plan in place to help you deal with it so that when it arises, you have tools in place that you, one, you know, you know, it's your emergency exit plan. You know, you know, what to reach for and, and where you're going to, uh, what you're going to do with it. And, you know, it's part of being prepared. So looking at what was the 2021 season, I'm curious what went into your planning, because that, that's a great goal around the Olympics. But man, as I look back, it was almost a funny year in terms of, uh, thankfully, the promoter at Doha agreed. And I think it was the first time women played at the Doha event. And then you go to the Cancun bubble. And then uh, you guys chose to play in Russia, which my understanding is the promoter wasn't respecting the same rules that Cancun was in terms of COVID and safety. So how wild and wacky was it as a coach trying to make a seasonal plan when really you're living week to week and the tour could have been shut down at any time, right? So what did you guys do to kind of plan and make sure you felt ready with everything that was going on with the whole world, let alone what's happening in beach volleyball? Yeah, 2021 was wild. Um, and, you know, I think we just, we started with the ultimate goal is the Olympics. We want to perform at the Olympics. So then going backwards from there, what does that mean? You know, when do we want to be peaking? What events do we want to be playing? And how does the travel affect all of that? Um, we knew Tokyo was going to be hot and humid. 
So are we addressing the heat and humidity component of it? Um, and what tournaments play into that and what don't, which ones don't. So there was, uh, you know, that ultimately Tokyo uh, was that guiding light that provided kind of like the answer, everything that we, any question we had to make, like, okay, how's this going to affect Tokyo? So that's where we started. And then, you know, it was just, we felt so fortunate to be able to compete after, you know, such a long, long break. And we were like, okay, great. We're happy to comply with whatever, you know, mask wearing and whatnot, like if, if we can go compete. So Doha was quite an experience. It was the first one. So quite a long travel and then getting there and adjusting to um, just everything around it. You know, there was a lot of attention on the uniforms and, um, and yeah, COVID and all of that. So it was just, it was a lot again, but it was great preparation. And then going into that Cancun bubble, again, the heat and humidity and crazy wind that those tournaments provided was just great learning experiences. Um, and then, you know, we had some, some physical issues along the way that we needed to keep in mind. And so we had to be very methodical on making sure that we were staying healthy. And then also the heat and humidity was a, a huge, you know, uh, that was a huge consideration. So um, we made the decision to, it was such a difficult decision, but ultimately we, we decided to skip Stad and go to a heat and humidity camp in Orlando, Florida instead, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, we would get that exposure to the heat and humidity, but in a controlled environment where we could dictate how much we trained and what time of the day and um, just control more aspects of that situation the travel and jet lag that, you know, traveling to Switzerland and back right before the Olympics played into that decision as well. So ultimately, you know, while these decisions, they're never easy, there's pros and cons for all of it. But for us, we decided that was going to be the best route to take. And uh, it was, I'm sure, controversial, but yeah, we look back on it and say, wow, that was, you know, we're glad we made those decisions. Yeah, just so our listeners fully understand what happens, you guys played Ostrava, uh, which it was in June, but you finish with a forfeit in the quarters, and then you're off until the end of July, early August for the Olympics. So just so they understand the magnitude, that's a long time to be off, especially for high performers who probably want to do more or they want to compete. So uh, when you went to Tokyo, like, was there any confirmation that it paid off or that's just something you'll never really know the effect of it, but you guys made a decision and you stuck with it? Yeah, there's. I think there's a little bit of, of both. Um we like when we reflect we reflected back on it we said wow we think that is the right we made the right decisions there along the way but how much of that is lucky chance or um you know just confirmation bias but um for the situations that we were facing like you know we needed to be healthy and we needed to address heat and humidity like there were just some big big rocks that were important for our program that um ultimately we thought were going to be very important in Tokyo and so those were the decisions that we made along the way. And yes, like not competing, we we had to think long and hard about that because that was a long time to not have competition. But then when we looked back on um, Doha, there had been a really long break before Doha and the girls came out and performed and, and won that tournament. So there was a little bit of like, okay, there's a little bit of proof there that they they can you know, hold back a little bit and still come out and compete. And, and I'm curious, does something, or does, does it all get magnified at the Olympics? And what I mean by that is you're playing the same teams that you're playing on the world tour, but as a coach, do you have to choose your language so carefully or are in the prep? Like when you're playing a Netherlands team that you know so well, like do you have to choose what you provide to your team or like not overhyping them saying, oh, Maggie's really good at this. Or when you play a Laura Ludwig, who we all know is a very clutch player, do you have to bring that up in the prep? Or, oh, did you see what Australia is doing? We're playing the finals. They're playing so well right now. Like, do you have to like kind of catch yourself not getting caught up in like the the recency bias of what is the Olympics and just say, we've played this team before. It's the same thing. The court's the same size. Like how do you approach these moments? Because it makes for a pretty good story that you guys had to play the Dutchies who you know very well, Laura Ludwig, who, like I said, has won everything in our sport. And then Australia looked unbeatable at this tournament and you faced them in the finals. So do you kind of have to give credit where it's due or do you just kind of coach your team? Like how do you approach these moments? 
I mean, the credit goes to April and Alex who are out there on the court and, you know, they are diligent about doing their homework. And, you know, after matches, we're all watching our own film, seeing, you know, like what would happen with us? What were we doing well? What did we need more work on? Um, and we're watching our next opponent and prepping. And, you know, they they do a lot of that homework themselves. So they're well aware. They know who's playing well. They know what they need, what they're going to face. And I think, you know, the experience that April has in the Olympic Games was just, it it was so strong. Like she's, she'd been there twice and medaled twice. And while that can be even more pressure, she just, she's she knows how to handle it. And, you know, was just a fantastic leader and supporter for Alex, who was her first time, um, but just couldn't have been a better partner for her, too, just in the way that she, I think, supported her and um, took care of her herself. And, um, yeah, they were they were just outstanding. Now, because everything is such high stakes, is there is there anything you can share with us that doesn't have to be at the Olympics, but anytime you guys did disagree? Like, I'm thinking April Ross is a terrific fantastic server is there ever a moment where she says you know what if i'm being targeted on service if i can't jump serve this whole match and you're going well you need to jump serve you're the best jump server in the world we need you to do more like is there anything that you guys kind of disagree with where the athlete has enough trust equity with you you kind of say well okay you guys are the ones on the court performing we're going to go with what you say even though your analytics or your game plan might say april we need you to spin serve 20 times this match where she's saying no chance i'm spin serving 20 times this time coach yeah, no, I think that that's just not really my approach either. I will offer suggestions, but at the end of the day, it's the two athletes who are out on the court competing and they need to believe in their game plan and they're the ones who are going to have to execute it. So I can offer any suggestion um, or thoughts on it, but at the end of the day, the I want the athletes making the decision because they're going to buy into it. And it's just up to me. If I'm convinced it needs to be a certain way, it's up to me to be persuasive enough to get them on board. And if I'm not, and and they aren't buying into it, then that's, I trust the players. Like they're the ones who are going to have to go out and execute. So, um, and then we can evaluate afterwards. Like, you know, if we were on different pages, you know, maybe next time, uh, do you want me to be more forceful with this? So, or, um, you know, how do we want to approach a situation like this the next time? Do you want a reminder of, you know, this particular situation and, you know, just, I guess afterwards, um, afterwards kind of debrief it and, and figure out, you know, how, how we can be better about it the next time. Uh, and to jump ahead once more, how did the opportunity at LMU come together? Because man, what a coaching room that is with you and John Mayer and Kelly Reeves. And that doesn't include like the managers that are on staff. Like uh, how did that opportunity come together to, to work with an NCAA program? Well, I just, I feel so fortunate to have had this opportunity um, after the Olympics and after the season. So, you know, it doesn't just end with the Olympic Games. There's still the, you know, the AVP season and then the World Tour finals. And, you know, it was a couple months longer. So um, it stretched on until mid-October. And the amount of fatigue, both emotionally, mentally, all of it was really high. Like, I just, I I felt spent. And after we finished in October, I was like, I just need a break from volleyball. Like I just, I, I need to take some time away and not have any commitments and not know what I'm doing next and just be. And I, I had that time. I think it was like six, six to eight weeks later, um, is when Betsy Flint made the decision that she wanted to play full time and and make a run for the Paris Olympics, and that meant she'd have to step away from um, being the assistant coach at LMU. And so John had that opening, and um, I think he he called me up and was like, "Hey, what are you up to? Are you, you know what's keeping you busy these days?" And I'm like, "Nothing at the moment." And so he's like, "Huh." would you, would you want to come to LMU and be my assistant coach? And, um, I thought about it for a little bit and was like, this sounds like a great, a great shift, you know, just working with a younger, you know, college age kids and a new challenge and, uh, being at a university with, you know, that energy of a campus and just a, something totally new and a different dynamic. And it sounded really exciting. So 
I said yes and started right away. And um, we hit the ground running. Like it was, it was preseason and then you're in the heart of the season. And then before you know it, it's over. And it feels like you just went through an FIVB preseason because it's the college season goes so fast. Um, but it was such a blast and I learned so much and I'm, I'm in just like a coaching gold mine with John Mayer there where, you know, he's bringing in different experts to help teach us different things and have discussions with us. And, um, it's just such a learning rich environment, which I enjoy so much and has just been, it's been awesome and such a huge, uh, learning curve, but, um, just, just fun. Now, is anything changed with your approach going from working with a federation like the Netherlands to a, a top level team with the USA to the NCAA? Like, it, did you have to change because of the level of athletes you're working with or the way you communicate? Or is it all more the same than it is different? I think the biggest challenge for me and the biggest um, thing that stands out is just the amount of people. Uh, like on a college team, we have 18, 18 girls on the team, as opposed to working with a pro team, you have two you know, and you're, you're worried about two players, um, or with the Dutch, we had six top teams, but, um, as working as individual teams. So it's just really, really different in the college environment because you've got three or four courts going at once and all these players out there that you need to pay attention to. And for me, that was such a challenge because I wanted to give everybody the same attention, but then I'm like, I don't even, you know, like trying to get to know everybody and it was so overwhelming. Um, so, you know, a huge learning curve there and kind of figuring out like, okay, what's realistic? How can I make the most of this and get the most out of our players? And just, yeah, John had to provide a lot of guidance along that way, but there's a lot that you just kind of have to figure out as you go too. But LMU just has, I mean, the culture that's in place there is, it's really healthy. It's really a learning rich environment. It's forgiving in that sense too. Um, so it feels safe and just a great group of athletes and who, you know, they all love beach volleyball and they love working hard and, and learning and growing. So it's, it just feels like a really good fit. Yeah. That's so great to hear. And before we let you go, I was hoping you could maybe let us in behind the curtain of what John's doing. So obviously runs a great podcast with coach your brains out. If people haven't read the book, I definitely recommend it. I'm rereading it right now. Is there anything that you kind of learned from a practice where you're like, man, I would have been such a better coach if I knew this, or I would have been a better player. Like, does anything jump to mind about the way things that he's doing? Because he's certainly not afraid to bring in an expert and install it to practice. Like it doesn't seem like he hesitates or goes pessimist on any of this information. So I'm curious, what have you stolen so far? I have learned so much from John. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And like you said, like, Oh, if I wish I'd known there's so much, so much of that. <laughs> and I think before working with John, I had all these gut feelings about how I wanted to coach and just things that were really important to me. And I didn't have any sort of theory behind it though, to kind of support reasons why it was all just more like a gut feel. And I think what John has provided is kind of like the research behind it and um and just all you know some some different uh different theories on coaching and how to coach and it's more kind of like the structure and understanding behind it and like when it makes sense you're like ah okay this is why i'm doing this or um or okay we're following this particular theory and learning more about it then it just I think for me, it's just like some it's just things are clicking. They just click a little bit differently. And um, yeah, it's, it is the, it has been a major aha moment uh, <laughs> working with John and, and how humble he is and how, how much he's, you know, still wants to learn and grow. And, you know, we're, we're constantly in the office, like what new video can we watch to learn something new? And just kind of, you know, just, it's a constant state of, of learning, which I think we both enjoy and appreciate. So it's been a really good fit. Now, it sounds like you're pretty open to this and a lifelong learner yourself, but I am curious, 
has there been anything that you kind of like had to d- double take a little bit and say like i i get athlete autonomy but i think we're going too far with this or anything that you kind of like been hesitant to or have you just challenged yourself to be open to everything he's trying as well just in my experience and my gut feel is that having seen things done so many different ways around the world it's really hard for me to um to come to terms with one way of doing something right. And I just, I've never really coached that way and have never really thought that I, I knew the correct technique to do something. So my coaching doesn't um, rely heavily at all on coaching technique. It's more on like, um, here's a, you know, we call it problem the problem solving. Okay, we present problems and and the athletes, you know, figure out the solutions and helping them figure out what the solutions are. But you know, our bodies move in such different ways that what works for me and my experience with having so many injuries that you know having to adapt and find new ways to do things. Um, everybody's body moves differently, so trying to get an entire team to move exactly the same way was just never, it didn't make sense to me. So I think this, you know, the path that we're on is, um, it just, maybe it's even, yeah, some confirmation bias um, down my path, but um, it's just, yeah, it's fun to learn about the theory side of it and then just hear some contradictory sides and, and, you know, hear other people's journeys and how they get to where they are in their coaching path. But it, the the structure of it, the, you know, the, the ability to call in an expert and just kind of hear what they have to say and, and weigh it all out is just so valuable. For sure. For sure. Well, this has been awesome. We'll have to get you back on the show because I feel like we, I, I tried to fit everything in and sure enough, we didn't get to go down the rabbit hole because I'm sure there's still lots left. But uh, just looking at the clock, I've taken a lot of your time. I was hoping you could share one more story where uh, you've competed at volleyball at the highest level, you've coached at the highest level, but our, our community is so fun and unique that something must have happened over your career that kind of gives you a smile as you look back and say, only in volleyball this could have happened. So I was hoping you could share a funny story before we let you go. Uh, I know I was supposed to think on this and I, <laughs> nothing super specific comes to mind, but I, I think just overall the journey and kind of evolution is kind of what stands out to me. So if I think about that first uh, international trip, you know, to Switzerland and to Berlin and at the time um, Swatch and Smart were tour sponsors. So in Berlin, they gave all the main drop players smart cars to drive around for the whole week of competition. How cool was that? But I lost in the country quota, so I didn't get a smart car, but they were all stick shifts and there were a couple of Americans who couldn't drive a stick shift. So, (laughs) um, so I got, uh, you know, the, the luxury of having a car for the week because somebody else couldn't drive it. (laughs) Um, But just some pretty cool experiences, you know, going from that to um, my gosh, I think, you know, we've traveled so much around the world, um, crazy travel from, you know, Brazil to China, you know, 40 some plus hours of travel and the delirium that sets in and, and getting in one place, not knowing if it's day or night. And, uh, it's, it's just, it's been a wild ride to, you know, then doing well in 2009 and, and having a chance to, to play for a couple medals, um, to then coaching in the Olympics and to, you know, 2021, it's, it's just been a wild, wild ride. And, um, having seen how much it's changed from 2003, uh, to 2001, then yeah, it's just also different. And yeah, sorry, that's nothing funny about <laughs> any of this, but just more, I guess, an, an observation, no, for sure. And, and I mean, yeah, driving around a smart car through the streets of Berlin has got to be a unique experience that volleyball provided you. So uh, thanks again for one, making the time to come on and two, for sharing all that you did. It was great to kind of be a fan of your career and then get behind the scenes. So thanks so much for everything you shared today. Oh, thanks for having me, Josh. And uh, really enjoy your podcast and everything you guys are doing to help the sport grow in Canada too.